0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Um, I've been waiting to talk to you because I went full nerd this week and I knew you would appreciate it.
1: (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, what'd you do?
0: (laughs) I bought a mechanical keyboard. (laughs)
1: Ooh, a clickety-clack keyboard so everyone <laughs> in your hallway can hate you.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm super excited about it. <laughs> um, so which one w- did you get? Well, um, I went with the Habit. It was a pretty cheap, I mean, fairly cheap. Apparently, it doesn't have cherry red mechanical clickers, which are the thing you want. Right. Um, it's a cheaper knockoff. But the whole thing is, like, super heavyweight... Um, metal so like there's no flex in it or anything like that um it's super cool (laughs) um the big sell obviously was the rainbow leds behind the keys (laughs) oh my (laughs) um yeah that was that was the big sell (laughs) and it was on sale on at amazon but (laughs)
1: You know, Nerds on Draft did a a whole episode on clickety keyboards. I will try to find it and link it in because it's a wonderful show. And (laughs) there are only a few tech nerds that can really understand the joy of having multiple different keyboards in a closet and going and picking out which one you're going to use. (laughs) Uh. Um,
0: (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm not using it to game with or anything, um, but it was just... I had been hearing from people how it's the way to go and all this jazz. And, okay, so it's the Havit HV-KB366L. And, like I said, the really big sale for me was, number one, it was on sale on Amazon. <laughs> number two, like 40 different modes of how I can do the LEDs behind the keys. And it makes <laughs> me happy.
1: <laughs> you know, I wonder if that was the same day there was a US or a, a Bluetooth keyboard for the iPad, or any tablet really. That also, it had six different LED backlight colors. That was on sale for like fifteen bucks last week. So I got uh, that for my iPad. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, it probably was the same day, which is even funnier. <laughs> to think it that is, people... it is not
1: clicky and it feels decidedly <laughs> like a fifteen-dollar keyboard. But you know, mm-hmm. considering that I can't fit even my MacBook Air on the tray table on oh. an airplane, yeah, uh, that's going to be my solution for when I'm <laughs> traveling.
0: <laughs> um and rainbow keys so you know that's that's always great
1: <laughs> exactly
0: um so when i ordered it and it came in the mail and the secretary knew i was super excited about it and she said to me so you're gonna write more manuscripts now right <laughs> touche <laughs>
1: is she on your T PNT committee
0: <laughs> i know <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> that sounds
1: like something they would say.
0: Uh yeah, that's what I thought too. Um N- yeah, nice keyboard.
1: Her... Get back to writing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or her wife is a um tenure track professor, so obviously that's where that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Oh my. Yeah. Um what have you been doing this week? I think I know the answer.
1: <laughs> uh, oh, I'm I am thoroughly swamped, but I am trying to Get ready for some travel. I'm actually going to Mexico for a conference on slow earthquakes here in a couple of weeks, so we've had to uh, try to work a little bit ahead and get a show pre-recorded since I have no idea what my internet's going to be like.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, we always want to be prepared for every eventuality in the case of, I would say, out of country travel, but Lord knows I've been to some backwoods places in the U.S. that don't have internet, so.
1: (laughs) It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Including Uh, my house. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so that's the big thing is just uh actually getting a poster ready for that and i have a movie theme color scheme oh our right, movie it the martian? poster color scheme is it no, the no <laughs> it's not it's older than the martian and i'm gonna see if anybody can guess it so when the conference <gasps> okay. happens i will put the poster up on my website and see if anybody oh,
0: gets it that's exciting i'm excited about that
1: <laughs> yeah it, it's a classic so i think someone probably will
0: um Excellent. I cannot wait for that. Um, Well, I think this week uh, we decided that we're going to stick with our whole um, sort of back to basics episode. And I noticed in the show notes we've disagreed about a few things, so this should be an exciting show to record.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be kind of fun Uh, (laughs) because you made some notes for this, and I went through and was looking at them this evening, and I was like, no, no. (laughs) In fact, in one place I typed, no, no, no. (laughs) So... I'm very well, curious to see.
0: I will say that, that that comment that you typed that to was put there strictly to provoke you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're
1: going to talk about plate tectonics and what actually we think is happening with the Earth's plates, because this is something that's really kind of crazy to me, and it shows how young of a science geology is.
0: Oh, exactly. It's this thing that it's one of the well, generally, it's one of the first things you learn if you take an intro geoscience course, and you just accept it and you move on. Um, But there's actually a lot of really cool history of science things that have to do with plate tectonics in general, because like john just said, it's actually really young. But first, I think we should sort of talk about that. You know, how can we have this thing that hasn't even been around 100 years? really, or hasn't been accepted for a 100 years. And it's like the very basis of our whole field of study. Um, and I think a lot of people who aren't involved in science sort of get confused about some of these aspects of the words like theory and law. And they don't really understand where contextually those things belong in science.
1: Yeah, and this is what, as I've voiced on the show several times, drives me nuts when people say law and they mean empirical relation. or things like that Uh, so yeah it's it's kind of a tricky space and another thing that i think people follow a lot uh, and even scientists fall into this trap is we think of the scientific method sometimes as a rigorous process so we have the hypothesis we devise a test we do the test yada yada but really it almost never happens that way in my experience anyway (laughs)
0: Yes, exactly. Um, And we definitely teach that as this linear thing. And I remember when I first started teaching several years ago and had to make my own information, you know, and I didn't want to express the scientific method as this linear thing because that's how it's always seen. And I remember I drew this triangle and I did it in Illustrator and it took me like six hours because I didn't understand the Illustrator. (laughs) (laughs) so i'm a little better at that now um but yeah it's not linear it's not that do to do to do thing you really revisit all the steps sometimes nearly simultaneously you know it's a really messy process
1: yeah and plate tectonics to me is the perfect example of hammering away at the same thing over and over and over (laughs) until you get incrementally closer to what's actually happening and as I think we're going to decide by the end of the show, we're still not really there.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. We're still lost somewhere within that triangle. So, I mean, um, <laughs> like,
1: like the last season of Serial, there's not really going to be a conclusion.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so, it's, it's really cool, and it's actually got some, it's a really cool story, too. Um, I find, like, the more I teach, the more excited I get about some of these old, um, some of the, you know, the history of how we do science, but um, I know you've got some notes, and I think you've got a really good quote that we could even start off with.
1: Well, so I think the first thing to come at this from is tectonics is kind of a weird word. Oh, that's uh, true. We, we throw
0: it around, and we all know what it means, but probably not everyone who listens knows what it means.
1: Yeah, and I would venture to say that a lot of geologists don't know the actual root. Ah, yeah, uh, that's true. Which is the Greek tecton, or builder. And cool. this comes from the idea that geologists had all kinds of theories to explain how mountains formed, or why earthquakes happened, or why volcanoes were where they were. And they were each individual theories of how these things were built. They were tectonics. And it turns out they were all inconsistent with each other. No central idea explained everything. And that's an immediate red flag that you're probably wrong.
0: Ha <laughs> ha uh yes, exactly, especially cuz a lot of these things accompany each other, right? You get earthquakes with mountain building, earthquakes with volcanoes, and so likely there's an underlying mechanism that is similar, but just like you said, there were lots of different ideas or hypotheses about all these different things. Um uh, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we really called that before we talked about plate tectonics, that's what we call it now. Um, But before that, it was just this thing called continental drift. And ironically, and this is one of the big ironies, that, man, I love it. I actually put it as an extra credit question on my intro geology (laughs) exam. (laughs) Um, This whole basis of geology now, it all started with a German meteorologist, and his name is Alfred Wegener.
1: You know, another meteorological coincidence here. But you put this in the notes, and before you get all excited about wegener i want to point out that this is one of the points i disagree on uh (laughs) there are (laughs) records of plate tectonic ideas that go all the way back to the 16th century
0: yeah well it's only like an hour-long show though
1: (laughs) it's true and they're they're generally you know not that well recorded they're poorly developed they weren't really followed up on but Mm -hmm. i did find a quote from none other than our very own ben franklin of course And this is a letter in 1782 to a French geologist. Okay, so I'm going to quote part of this letter. Ben Franklin said, Such changes in the superficial parts of the globe seemed to me unlikely to happen if the earth were solid to the center. I therefore imagined that the internal parts might be a fluid more dense and of greater specific gravity than any of the solids we are acquainted with, which therefore might swim in or upon that fluid. Thus, the surface of the earth would be a shell capable of being broken and disordered by the violent movements of the fluid on which it rested.
0: That's unbelievable.
1: <laughs> and that is a pretty decent summation of some of the first ideas of plate tectonics way before Wegener, who's always credited with it.
0: It's true. And it, it actually almost answers the problems that Wegener couldn't answer, you know? Yes. If, if only he had looked at this, actually. Um, but he is the one who is always sort of talked about, um, and he's the one I'm going to talk about. Um, and maybe that's because he actually wrote a lot of his papers. He's a very accomplished, uh, meteorologist, climatologist, actually. He did a lot of, um, exploration in the Arctic, which is actually where he died. Um, and so... Yeah, and
1: he actually came up with all this while he was recovering from, uh, wounds from the war. Right. Yeah. Right.
0: And it's funny because... <laughs> It's, it's like that quote that says, you know, the great finds in, um, in science don't begin with shouts of Eureka, but with, hmm, how odd. mm mm-hmm. um, Because he seriously just looked at the continents and said, these look like they fit together, which I think is what any person that ever looks at a globe does, right?
1: Right. I mean, if you stare at it long enough, it looks like a puzzle.
0: Yeah, it does. And especially if you look at the continental shelves, that's even better. Um, they fit together even more if you're looking at not just the continents as we see them today, but the continental shelves of our continents, and they really fit together. And that's pretty funny, because it is just look at this map and say, wow, you can go back to our projection show look at the map however mm-hmm. you want to <laughs> and see that, yeah, it just looks like a big puzzle. Um, and so he first published his idea in 1912 and then later in a 1950 book, The Origins of the Continents and the Oceans. Um, and he just said these look like they go together. And then he started backing it up with um, some geology.
1: Yeah. I mean, you see glacial striations in one place and another place, neither which are glaciated now and they're separated Uh, you can see all these different features, right, that have to have been created about the same time and at the same location in places that are very distant now.
0: Oh, right, exactly. So not just the geology, but we cannot leave out the paleontology as well. Um, So many things, like not just animals, but plants too, were found, you know, in South America and Africa, and there probably wasn't a land bridge that big. So how did they get there, right? Right. And the Mesosaurus found in South America and Africa only, nowhere else. So,
1: yeah, and just in specific parts of those continents, even. So, we know that 300 million years ago, they were together. (laughs) They were one landmass, and now they're not.
0: And, you know, he even had the dates right, um, probably based on a lot of this fossil evidence, but he said that, that the continents were all together, and he is the one who named them Pangaea which is still what we call that supercontinent. And it broke apart at the end of the Carboniferous, which is pretty close to correct. Um, So even back then, 100 years ago, he had the dates pretty well known.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So he had the dates down and he had this idea, but unfortunately this is where revisiting parts of scientific method come in. Uh, There wasn't really a mechanism to drive all this, right? It looks like it worked, but how can you expect large chunks of the earth to just move?
0: Uh, exactly. And this is where I love to just think about Wegner being like, don't care. I'm a climatologist. You guys deal with this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but he actually did come up with some ideas such as the centrifugal force of the earth rotating would sort of force the continents toward the equator and thereby they would glob together. But that was proved wrong, you know, pretty quickly. Um, was one of his mechanisms?
1: Yeah, another one was he uh, suggested tidal pull. Uh, so lunar and solar tides actually would very slowly, gradually tug the plates, these solid plates across the solid surfaces on which they rested. And the physicists mostly just laughed at that and <laughs> dismissed it, which was right.
0: Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> so it's sad because you know he did come up with these mechanisms, but nothing that would work. And it wasn't. It was definitely nothing that tied together. These processes that we were talking about before—earthquakes, volcanoes, mountain building—that really didn't enter in. So there's this idea, and it's hanging out there, but it took a while to figure out why.
1: Yeah, and in that, in the meantime, traditional tectonics uh, kept continuing, and a lot of people forgot about this idea. Period, right. because it was just complete lunacy. <laughs>
0: Which, as we know, those are always the best ones,
1: but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, But then, uh, Arthur Holmes comes along in about 1928 and talked about convection currents in the mantle and how they could move plates. So, I know this is one of the mechanisms that you like to talk about.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's true. Um, (laughs) I, I like to think it's my meteorology background and my... You know, kindred spirit with Alfred Wegener that I like this um, idea of these big convection currents in the mantle. So just like you would convect the atmosphere, or convect the boiling water that you're making to cook your pasta in, right? And so as these convection currents move around in the mantle, basically they drag the plates, so the rigid part of the earth, um, around with it.
1: Yeah, and when he proposed this, the physicist said, the earth is rigid, this is impossible, no. <laughs> and I, I love his reply to the physicist. So I, I I like a lot of quotes in these kind of episodes. And uh, Holmes said to the physicist, purely speculative ideas of this kind, specially invented to match the requirements, can have no scientific value until they acquire support from independent evidence.
0: Revere number Which, three. <laughs>
1: Which is a great way of saying, "Yeah, there's no support for mine, but you don't have any support either."
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, there are some pretty good quotes in here too that some people said to poor Albert Fegner, as well about his crazy ideas. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but now, I I deign to bring up PMAG as the answer. You know, I know you probably want geophysics to be the answer to this, but, you know, PMAG had a a lot to do with proving Wegener right.
1: Well, PMAG is geophysics.
0: Yeah, I don't really like to say that, but...
1: <laughs> in fact, it's more geophysics than a lot of geophysics.
0: <laughs> because you so have a lot of really true. interesting
1: things going on that we talked about in the PMAG show. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it turns out that... As in many areas of science, it unfortunately took the funding resulting from a war to make a scientific advancement. Uh,
0: Right, exactly. Um, And in this case, it's, I would say, right in my wheelhouse. Um, So we took these magnetometers out, drug them behind boats, and we weren't looking for exactly what we found geologically. You know, we were obviously looking for large chunks of metal floating under the water, submarines, right? Right. Right, U-boats. Exactly. But what we did find was that when we were driving out in the middle of the ocean, the magnetometer kept picking up these weird polarity reversals. So not U-boats, but very, very specific patterns of positive and negatively polarized rocks. And we didn't quite know what that was, but we did know we were near the Mid-Atlantic Ridge.
1: And when they mapped this out, it was these large ridge-parallel alternating magnetic field lines. Uh, And it turns out they actually also found this alternating magnetic polarity in layered lava deposits as well.
0: Right. And so now people began thinking, hmm, interesting. Um, What's going on here, (laughs) right? How are we matching up these weird polarity reversals What are we recording, and why are they here in the first place?
1: Yeah. So after the war, uh, we went and did some more mapping of the oceans and more scientific exploration. And they went back to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge where things were a little suspicious looking. And, yeah, it it was very suspicious. So you have a big (laughs) what looks like a crack with earthquakes that line up along it and these weird magnetic alternating field bands that emanate from it. So that's interesting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. (laughs) Um, So that was quickly followed up by, you know, this really famous, I mean, as geologists, we pretty much have all read this paper, I'd like to think, Um, Hess and Dietz in the early 60s, they proposed this thing called seafloor spreading hypothesis. And so these magnetic bands that sort of paralleled this big crack that was the mid-ocean ridge, um, they changed polarity, And Hess and Dietz said that at this ridge, we're actually making new crust. So as that crust cools down, and as we talked about last week, as um, certain minerals cool, they can acquire the Earth's field. So the crust would cool down, acquire the polarity. And this happened over time. And as we know, there's polarity switches back and forth over time. And so you're basically recording, you know, the magnetic stratigraphy of the seafloor. But if we're making crust there either the earth is getting bigger or the crust is getting destroyed somewhere.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting about this story is you, you think, okay, this is the sixties and that's not all that long ago. We're just getting a handle on this idea of plate tectonics. And there was a camp of geologists that said, yeah, we're generating more crust. The earth is getting bigger.
0: Um, So I think that camp of geologists is small now, but, that camp of rappers who think this is large right <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i don't know if uh, if folks saw rapper b.o.b stated that the earth was flat about a week ago uh, <laughs> and sparked an outrage among all sane people
0: uh but our our nerd hero neil degrasse tyson came to our rescue uh and we've linked in the show notes his rap battle with uh b.o.b <laughs> explaining how wrong he is but yeah, but we digress.
1: <laughs> we digress. So other people realize that that is possible, but not maybe likely. Uh, and they notice things like that earthquakes and volcanoes are clustered around the now famous Ring of Fire or the Pacific Basin. And they started noticing all of these areas of what they called subduction, or crust going away into the mantle and getting recycled.
0: Right, because in the middle of the Pacific Ocean is another one of these ridges, and so you know where we were making crust, and now we've got an idea of where we're getting rid of crust now. Um,
1: Yeah, so crust gets made, the ocean spreads, the crust gets older, cooler, denser, and then eventually it gets pushed back down into the mantle remelted and recycled
0: right and we're all on board with this no one disagrees with this um but i do have a quiz for you do you know how old the oldest ocean crust is
1: oh gosh (laughs) (laughs) no
0: it's it's jurassic actually um so that's actually interesting to note just in terms of how we do geology so we have a very good mag strat record so a magnetic stratigraphy record back to the jurassic but beyond hmm. that, we have to look for continental rocks, and it gets a little, a little dicey because that ocean record is a continuous record, right? You don't have to worry about things like erosion and sedimentation and all that stuff. So we're good to the Jurassic, and then it gets a little iffy. But
1: well, just a and you know, there's complicating, uh, there's complicating factors in terms of ocean basins opening and closing repeatedly, yes. which <laughs> are actually called Wilson cycles, which takes us to our next hero of plate tectonics.
0: Yay. Yeah. Um, So in 65, so this is a really short amount of time that we're talking about, right? I mean, things started turning really fast. This idea has been around a long time, but we really started, you know, this is how science works, right? We all start sort of piggybacking on everyone else's ideas to come up with this thing together. And um, J. Tuzo Wilson described tectonics um, as the movement of these rigid plates, and he laid out the three different types of plate boundaries. And, you know, that's still what we talk about today, right? Um, because oh, yeah. By, yeah, like there's three types of plate boundaries. There's a lot of different subtypes. And where they meet, it gets a little weird. But, you know, right. that's good. We're all on board with that.
1: So basically this means by the late 60s, so say 68 or so, a lot of the parts of plate tectonics were beginning to be I hesitate to say understood, (laughs) because we still understand a lot of it. But they were more accepted. The fundamentals were laid out. And by 1970, they were making it into textbooks. But remember, this is 1970, and a lot of people teaching geology right now uh, (laughs) did not have plate tectonics in their primary education.
0: Right, exactly. Um, That's always a cool thing to do, is to pick up a earth science book that's pre this period and see that you know we don't we don't talk about plate tectonics and it's such a large part of the study today and it's always mind-blowing to me and i mean a lot of the people that taught me and that taught you too probably they didn't grow up as geologists learning this theory that is the basis of geology it's kind of cool to think about Uh,
1: yeah and um, once again that shows how young the field is and i am Absolutely fascinated to see by the time that we retire, what people are like, you believed what?
0: <laughs> I'm going to throw slow earthquakes under the bus. That's a ridiculous term. <laughs> oh, see,
1: that's uh, that's what I do. So I like slow earthquakes. <laughs> and I think that's one of these areas that, you know, you're saying people kind of uh, frenzy around a research topic and in five or 10 years make decades worth of progress.
0: Right, I think slow earthquakes
1: is one of those areas. Uh, It's something that I I would like to do a whole show on at some point, but we're not (laughs) quite there.
0: Yeah, yeah. But this is a good. This discussion is a good example of the scientific method, right? Because I could see that people that weren't scientifically inclined come in and say, "You've only known about this since the mid '60s. Are you kidding me? How can you believe that it's true?" And it's Mm -hmm. because that whole discovery process is sort of a logarithmic type scale
1: yeah you know i guess that's an interesting way to look at it you make huge bounds at first and then as you get to know more and more it becomes harder and harder to refine right Uh, right exactly yeah that's that's an interesting way to look at is logarithmic progress and Mm -hmm. uh if you're trying to get tenure you want to be on the early end of that (laughs) and (laughs) uh in a very active field but
0: uh that is true
1: (laughs) so Then there's still a lot of things that are unsettled, like we said, and I think one of them is really the driving physics of plate tectonics.
0: Which is funny, because that's a whole reason why people didn't believe Wegener in the first place. (laughs) And we're going to fight it out again. Um, So there are, there's a lot of different um, words that we throw out for what's really happening. Are these convection cells? Are they the answer? Or do we need to look at the actual rigid part of the earth which we call the lithosphere right it's the crust and sort of the uppermost part of the mantle so it's the part that behaves rigidly as opposed to the rest of the upper mantle which i always sort of describe in my classes as behaving like peanut butter it's like a squishy solid okay because it's it's not super hot yes gooey (laughs) gooey is a good word (laughs) um and so is it convection within this or does it have more to do with say once we start subducting something, does yeah. that, the mechanism of that subduction make a difference? And I think we should point out here there's two types of crust on Earth continental and oceanic. And just super simple oceanic crust is more dense than continental crust.
1: Right. Continental crust is thicker, uh, you yes. know, say 35, 40 kilometers thick, and not <laughs> as dense. Oceanic crust is you know, 5 kilometers, 8 kilometers, maybe 10. Sometimes
0: 10, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, So this is... I know you, you like talking about the convection mechanism, but if you just rely on the convection mechanism, you actually get plate velocities that do not match what we observe.
0: Right. And so why do we observe them now, which we'll talk a little bit about later, but, you know, with GPS now, we have very detailed observations of how the plates are moving all over the plates, right? This is something that we didn't have back then. We just knew if you're creating crust, you got to be destroying it somewhere. But now we have really specific um, numbers that we can put. So now modeling is a big deal. And so here comes this slab pull thing.
1: <laughs> yes. So slab <laughs> pull. if you're subducting, let's say you're subducting a piece of oceanic crust underneath a piece of continental crust. So you have this Cold, dense, thin layer of crust that's getting subducted beneath this buoyant, thick mass of continent. That, as it gets subducted, is going to, by virtue of its weight pulling it towards the center of the Earth, down into the mantle, pull the plate behind it. Uh, because they're one big plate, right? And this right. is. This is the slab pole method, and I know that you have a video that you really like that shows sort of the same principle at um, a much different time and space scale.
0: Uh, right. <laughs> this is actually pretty funny. Um, so as opposed to all your fancy number models, John, I'm going to go to an actual Earth process model. Um, <laughs> and so in Africa, they have these big lava lakes, it's just what it sounds like. It's a big area of lava, right? So lava is, what, 800 to 1,100 degrees Celsius when it comes up. And it instantly gets this crust on top of it when it hits the air because the air is, you know, 20 degrees Celsius. Um, So when it does this, those plates that are on this lava lake, which is convecting and moving around underneath, interact with each other. And it's really actually a cool little model for plate tectonics. So um, my colleague... Um, Brian was showing me this stuff and I thought wow those are great and so there are a bunch of videos out there I linked one of them in there and it kind of does show this slab pull thing because you have a plate getting sucked under another sort of plate of lava it's being subducted you can tell (laughs) and it starts out slowly at first and then it starts really cranking it and it just sucks that entire crusty part underneath it Um, and that's a really good analog for slab pull
1: yeah. Well, and then there's the demo that a lot of people do in high school uh, where you take the long chain of metal beads and pull it out of a beaker. And you see this. Uh, I don't, how would you describe the effect you see? You see the beads shoot upward out of the beaker before they fall. Yeah. Uh,
0: Right. Um, so it doesn't take a little, you only just take it out of the beaker a little bit. And so the beads don't just cascade over the side. They sort of like arch up in seeming defiance of gravity.
1: Right. So these things can be uh, tricky to think about, especially at a plate scale and the time scales (laughs) that we think about. That's, that's the hard thing.
0: That's always the first thing I get asked is how fast are these things moving? Everyone always asks that in my intro classes when we're talking about it. There's actually a pretty wide range there.
1: I have the perfect analogy for you. Uh, So when people come through our lab, I generally say, and I'm using imperial units here because that's what people understand. Oh, Uh, painful. (laughs) Yeah. So I I generally say about four to six inches a year. And that's pretty hard to conceptualize because it's a small distance in a long time. And those are both things that we're bad at. Right. (laughs) Uh, So if you do the math, it turns out that that's pretty much the exact range for uh, the rate that your fingernails grow, about four Mm. inches a year, and the rate that your hair grows, about six inches a year.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So
1: I always tell people, every time you clip your fingernails, that's how far California moved. And (laughs) that's pretty (laughs) mind-blowing.
0: That's pretty funny. (laughs)
1: Yep, um, and it makes clipping your fingernails good. a little more entertaining.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly, and it'll make you keep trying to clip your fingernails even further to get rid of a California, but that's not how this works. <laughs> <It's> just an <laughs> analogy. <is>. Um, <laughs> so as you can tell from us discussing this back and forth, there's actually still a lot of controversy and experiments that are going on to determine sort of this mechanism. The the driving mechanism but the thing that convection cells started talking about you know that started to explain you know why do you have earthquakes and volcanoes along these subduction zones right it's because of this recycling and creation of crust right you're creating it in the ridges where you get earthquakes there as well and then you're destroying it and these subduction zones in a more violent manner which also produces mountains um So this cycle of plate creation and destruction starts to tie it all together into this sort of unifying theory.
1: Right. And, you know, we mentioned that there are a lot of different ways that these continental plates can collide and they can do different things. So Mm -hmm. I think maybe we should talk about that, say, take the three basic types and maybe a few of the more common subtypes, the things that we would... Uh, hear about in an intro class and maybe go over those
0: right so since 1965 these sort of three basic types of plate boundaries and obviously it's a lot more complicated um than this but this is a pretty good pretty good example um and so since we first started talking about mid-ocean ridges um we can talk about that divergent plate boundaries and that just means where the two plates are moving apart from each other and therefore you're creating new crust at this plate boundary
1: Exactly, and these are uh, drivers, I would say, of tectonism. That's an interesting word. But uh, (laughs) other than that, I I don't have a lot of things that make me think about divergent plate boundaries, other than they exist. Oh, see,
0: well, mid-ocean ridges are pretty boring, mostly because we don't look at them a lot, right? Yeah. Um, So that's ocean-ocean divergent boundaries. You can also get divergent boundaries that are created on continents. Right, so so continental rifting. Exactly. And this is actually becoming one of my favorite. I spend a lot more time on it um, than I used to, (laughs) I will say, um, because here in Oklahoma, we have a failed continental rift. Um, When you start to rip a continent apart, you know, not all the cracks rift all the way apart and create a new plate boundary. Um and so in Oklahoma, back in the Cambrian, so five hundred million years ago, this happened. We started to rift apart and we were unsuccessful. <laughs> but the remnants of that are seen today in the Wichita Mountains. And we call it the um the Southern Oklahoma allocogen. And so Alokogens are just these failed rifts and they create a lot of really cool geology and it's some of our um, the Wichita Mountains are really sort of breathtaking topography in Oklahoma. These big <laughs> For granitic, Oklahoma, yeah. Hey, <laughs> there are mountains, okay? <laughs> these big granitic knobs rising out of the plains. Um, so that's a cool divergent boundary or these continental rifts. Obviously, the East African rift system is really studied, highly studied. Uh, lots of seismic studies, earthquake stuff. Yeah. Seismometers buried out there, um, but that's that's a whole nother show. So just divergent in the oceans, you get ridges on the continents, you get continental rifts.
1: Right, and then so the next type, if we have divergent, is going to be convergent.
0: <laughs> <And> Process of <laughs> elimination.
1: <laughs> right, these are where plates are coming together. So this can be an ocean-ocean uh, convergence, in which case mm-hmm. you get a trench. And the most famous example of that is the Marianas Trench, which is the deepest part of the ocean at 11 kilometers deep. Great. And generally the oldest, coldest plate is what's going to go down uh, in this situation. Then you can have continent-continent collision, and the continents are both buoyant. Neither one gets pushed down, and you end up getting this basically really thick plate with big mountains and that's what built the himalaya
0: right um the himalaya i talk a lot about too um i have a little tiny tiny everest obsession that's actually huge um (laughs) but so the indian plate crashed into china and it is still trucking that guy moves Mm -hmm. fast (laughs) um uh i can link in the show notes a video showing the movement of the indian plate um Uh, Because it's actually quite fast. Um, Paleomagnetism is one of those things we use to understand the movements of the continents, which we can talk about at another time. Um, But the Indian plate moved really quickly, and it's still moving really quickly. And because continent and continent, same density, you're creating the Himalayas. They're rising a lot even now, today. They're still growing because of um, the subcontinent crashing into Eurasia.
1: Yeah, well, you know, and there's some discussion, too, with these kind of continent continent collisions. Uh, is the amount, the area of continental landmass roughly the same over geologic time? Because uh, it's pretty hard to create continental crust. So mm-hmm. what exactly, how long have these continents been around, and what's the area of continental land doing with time? It's an active area of research right now. but. right. There's one more type that we haven't mentioned, which would be the ocean-continent collision or convergence, and this is the one that I like because <laughs> it's the one that generates all of the things that are the reason I have a job.
0: Um... <laughs> I was trying to think of something obnoxious, but I'll just I'll just keep it nice. I've given you enough crap today already. Um, <laughs> so you get really big earthquakes at subduction zones due to the mechanics of sucking one continental plate underneath another one. Um, it causes a lot of uh, frictions, shall so we say.
1: Yeah, so you actually get uh, a little bit of mountain building going on, you get some big earthquakes on the interface where this one plate is pushing underneath the other or being pulled underneath the other, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, And then you also get what we call back art volcanoes uh, from the plates going down and some melts coming up. And this is where you get things like uh, Mount St. Helens would be a good example of a, a volcano from a continent ocean collision.
0: Exactly. So if, if we're talking about our own little place, and we're talking about North America, you know, that's the plate boundary that we have. Um, you know, we've got these failed rifts all throughout North America, really, um, of different ages, but we don't have an active plate boundary on the East Coast, but on the West Coast is a subduction zone, and then the third boundary, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but what's cool about the subduction zone, especially the Pacific Northwest, is that there are a lot of Indigenous population in the Pacific Northwest. And a lot of their tribal stories seek to explain these things that they have witnessed over time, right? And a lot of those things are earthquakes and volcanoes. Um, And just briefly, I've linked this in the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network has um, this linked in too. Um, When you think about indigenous peoples of the Pacific Northwest, you think about their totem poles, right? They have a very distinctive you know, art style, Um, and the Thunderbird is generally on top of these, and he was thought of as this protector of the people, and so the whale would give the people a hard time, and Thunderbird came to their rescue, and this is just, you know, paraphrasing a lot of the different stories, but Thunderbird would pick up the whale and take him far out into the ocean and drop him. And so when he did that, not only was there an earthquake, because whale was so big, but there would also be an accompanying tsunami.
1: Right, which kind, we know kind of cool <laughs> happens with a lot of large subductions on earthquakes.
0: Exactly. Um, and all the stories, they don't just fight once. They fight over and over again. But because both Thunderbird and whale are tired, Thunderbird can't fly as high. He drops whale lower down. And so the next earthquake is generally smaller and smaller and smaller. So... It's this cool story that explains earthquakes, aftershocks, and tsunamis as well. It's kind of neat.
1: Yeah. So subduction zones are where a lot of exciting things happen. But there's one more type, the third major type of plate boundary. And that is the transform plate boundary. Your favorite.
0: So boring. (laughs) (laughs) this one this one barely gets mentioned i get so excited about subduction zones and rifts that i just don't even care about transform plate boundaries
1: so a transform (laughs) boundary is where the plates are sliding past each other laterally so if you hold your left and right hands uh, together with the palms together and pull your right hand back towards you push your left hand away from you let's say that's a transform boundary nothing's getting pushed underneath anything uh and, you know, these do generate some big-ish earthquakes, the the San Andreas Fault being uh, one of the more famous transforms.
0: Exactly. So this is why California is not going to fall off into the ocean because nothing is getting subducted or diverged, right? This is a transform plate boundary. Probably, you know, well, it's definitely the most famous around here. I know they made a movie about it. It was one of your favorites, right? <laughs> yeah. And,
1: <laughs> you know, they... They don't have as big of earthquakes as subduction zones for reasons that we probably won't go into right now, uh, but they do generally uh, have some pretty destructive earthquakes because look right. at California; it's a very populated area, and the San Andreas has huge amounts of displacement. It's been going for a long time, and there are rocks of vastly different age next to each other uh, because they've been trans uh, translated in space. So right, exactly. These are pretty neat. And transforms are also the way, you know, if you think about plate tectonics, you got a bunch of plates, say a dozen or so, on a sphere, and they're all moving around. Eventually, things get complicated. <laughs> and transforms are a way that convergent and divergent boundaries can be linked.
0: Right. So subduction zones is another way, right? You know, you push that there, and then but what happens then when you link the other two and it does get really complicated because now you've got some sliding past on parts of the plate where other parts of the plate are subducting and it gets really confusing out there.
1: Yeah. And I mean, in the oceans, a lot of times you see transforms that have a lot of little step patterns, step over transforms to accommodate some complicated motion. So it it can be pretty difficult and, we, of course, we're measuring all of this incredibly precisely now. Like Shannon said, we're doing it with GPS. But I think, well, I know GPS is an entirely different show. And even possibly <laughs> sure. using GPS to look at tectonics is its own thing.
0: Uh, right. It's got its own name, right? Geodesy, basically. Right. So. And, which is a really cool word. I just wanted to be the first to say it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, of course, she used to look at volcanic activity and all these other things, too. But I think to uh, keep this show relatively focused, uh, probably wrap up Plate Tectonics and say that we're still working on it.
0: Uh, Was that an earthquake joke? Focused?
1: (laughs) Yeah, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Well, it's funny because I think that uh, our next segment is going to keep this whole sort of open-ended scientific question thing going as well.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So that means it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Fun Paper Friday.
0: Yay.
1: And I'm really I'm really gonna get that cowbell back. <laughs> you, you should. Uh, so I will say the paper that I found this week has a not incredibly thrilling title, and the paper itself <laughs> is pretty difficult to read unless you're a material scientist. But it's okay. We're going to break it down a little bit. It is called Mesoscale Texture of Cement
0: Hydrates. (laughs) Um, I'm glad to hear you keeping your southern roots and saying cement instead of cement. Uh, Cement, whatever. (laughs) Cement. (laughs) That made me happy. Um, (laughs) This is is actually pretty funny because I remember the first time that I saw a concrete poured Um, well, that I watched the whole process, you know, we've got, we've got an acreage out here. So we had this big concrete slab poured for our shop. And so it looks fine and they smooth it out. But then when they go to grind on it or cut it at all, you see that it's not smooth, right? There are huge chunks like right underneath the surface. And so if concrete's made up of all these chunks, how can it be this big solid mass? And this is sort of what they talk about in here, which was Pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, so the, the fundamental question is, does concrete behave like one material, say like metal, which perfectly follows physical laws uh, with its crystalline structure, or right. is it, I, I guess you would say, almost more like a rock, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. a cemented <laughs> sedimentary rock. So... Uh Right. <laughs> yeah. And they, they did this through a lot of really neat uh, techniques like small angle neutron scattering, and doing different types of tomography to map the nanoscale pores inside concrete as a function of all kinds of things, uh, including how much water was mixed in with it.
0: Right, because, I mean, concrete follows this very specific formula to make it, right? Which is, you know, water, sand, gravel, and then this powder, which comes from baking rocks into a powder, essentially. Um, And...
1: Uh, funny enough, actually baking the rocks into a powder is a huge contributor of greenhouse gas. Uh, oh. concrete is a big driver in this.
0: That's pretty painful. Um, I didn't really realize how big it was till I read this. So that's, that is super sad. Um, <laughs> but it begs the question, what does it act like? Does it act like a solid or does it act like this aggregate, you know, which is what we call it before it becomes concrete anyway? Um i thought the answer was kind of surprising but the answer that it's a bit of both is pretty obvious
1: yes of course like any good scientific study it's going to be well it's complicated uh and it so it's turns probably mantle out
0: mantle convection and slab pull that's what you're saying
1: yeah there you go concrete <laughs> slab pull that's yep, uh yep. so it turns out that these little nanopores, basically you can always find smaller and smaller particles to fill up holes in concrete or the pore space. So that would make you think it behaves like a solid. Right. But we know that in the end, you are going to have some holes. And what right. the structure of those is, what their size is, determines how rigid the concrete's going to be. And that's a function of uh, all kinds of things, mainly the water content.
0: Right. Um, so if you have... I thought that was cool, and it was actually just saying you can always – the the author says you know, you can always find a smaller grain to fit in between these larger grains in concrete. Um, but if you get too big a holes in between there and you fill them up with, say, water, then when you make your concrete, it leaves it fluffy, which I thought was an awesome way to describe concrete. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so if you've got these holes in it, you get fluffy concrete that doesn't act as a solid, and as you can imagine – We use concrete for all kinds of very important structural things. And so you don't want fluffy concrete. (laughs) You want your concrete to act like a solid.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the more pore space you have, and they they point out that you can actually get long-term concrete creep and flow.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, that actually happens no matter what the pore space is, because you're always going to have a little bit because you can never eliminate all the pore space. Um, so that's that's kind of their equivocal answer of it's a bit of both. Um, but I hate to say this, but the importance of this is modeling, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to know how to model the concrete you're making, your particular mixture, as a solid or as a sort of solid or as an aggregate because that's what makes the integrity of whatever structure you're building.
1: Yeah, well, and this is another one of those things that's kind of surprising that we have so many concrete structures and a relatively limited understanding of how concrete works.
0: Uh, that was really disturbing for me, too.
1: And granted, there's a lot of engineering tests that have gone in uh, to, define empirical relations, yeah, to define empirical relations that are used when making structures, and they do great because rarely we have structural failures, though they do happen. uh right. But this research could really allow better designed concrete, so concretes that have different properties, like, say, one that's more elastic or one that's more rigid or one that's less likely to flow and that kind of thing.
0: Right. Um, I think it's summed up really well by this outside scientist who was looking at this paper who said that um, looking at this is a quintessential step towards the provision of a seamless atom-to-structure understanding of concrete. I thought that was kind of neat to think about.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to look at things from a very broad scale and say this is how they behave, and to look at things at an atomic scale and say this is how it's happening in you know a given molecule or a given very narrow set of conditions. But in between, it gets really fuzzy.
0: Right, exactly. Hopefully not fluffy, though, because that's dangerous.
1: <laughs> Hopefully not fluffy. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's what I had for this paper. It was a, a pretty interesting thing. Uh, to look at. And though not a material scientist, I think we were still able to pull some things out of it.
0: Uh, Yes, yes, I absolutely think so. And if you've ever looked at, you know, concrete being cut, now this answers some of your questions, maybe.
1: Yeah. So if you have a fun paper that you think we should talk about, or anything to suggest or want to float your own theory about the shape of the earth or what drives plate tectonics... (laughs) You can send that to us because we love hearing from our listeners. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us?
0: Uh, well, if you want to get into a Twitter battle with John about the flat earth, you can do that, at don't panic Geo. <laughs> um, you can also email us any of those things, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And I am at Shannon Doolin on Twitter, and John is at geo underscore Lehman.
1: And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science.